Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our author events at www.skylightbooks.com. At our website, you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. And don't be afraid to follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Let me tell you, you may already know, but let me tell you a little bit about who we've got here tonight. We're so excited for Jenny Hollowell. Uh, she is from around here, so we're absolutely stoked to have her here and to have you all here. Uh, she grew up in Virginia. She got a BFA and MFA before leaving there. Her short stories have appeared various places, won awards, all sorts of wonderful things. Um, and an interesting little tidbit, this first novel of hers, um, was recently in, just this week, in the New York Times newly released section with two other Los Angeles books, one of which we had an event for last week, Janelle Brown's, um, and oddly enough, also Glenn Beck's conspiracy thriller. Um, so who knows what the logic on that list is, but we know they've got pretty good taste for the most part, uh, like much of the New York Times. Uh, another another uh, review in the Boston Globe has a really nice sort of uh, mood setter, I think. Um, Hollowell's words make even ordinary traffic light bulbs glow like nebulas. So uh, let's, let's hear a little bit of that. Thank you for coming. Let's, let's welcome Jenny Hollowell. Thank you so much for coming. I really appreciate it. It's good to see so many friendly faces out there. Um, I'm going to give you a little bit of information about the book so that the section I'm going to read will make sense. Um, the main character in the book is Bertie Baker. She is an, a, a struggling actress. She has moved to LA from Virginia. She left her evangelical family, which included a husband, and just up and moved to LA one night. Um, the story begins nine years later. She's been in LA for nine years. She, it's not going well. Uh, she has been working as a body double for a much more famous actress named Milena Duval. And um, her agent has just alerted her that the director of Milena's new film wants to meet with her. She's not really sure why this is, but she goes anyway. Um, and that's the section we're about to read. Another thing to mention, her agent's name is Redmond, and she has recently uh, become kind of romantically entangled with someone named Lewis. So I think that's all you need to know. Um, the director's name is Max Mason, and that's who she's about to meet. Max Mason greets Bertie with two quick kisses that land in the air near her ears, and then leads her down the hallway of serious pictures. He pauses at a glass-walled office and taps against the glass. The dark-haired woman sitting inside looks up at him, nodding as she speaks into the headset of her phone. The rubber plants behind her desk are huddled around her like advisors. They sit in shiny black pots, their leaves thick and glossy and green, nodding silently in the draft from the ceiling's air conditioning vent. The woman seems planted too, rooted somewhere beneath the dark surface of the desk and the leather chair where she sits, swaying slightly. Her head is in her hands, a heavy flower. She rolls her eyes and looks at her watch. Then she holds her index finger like a gun to her temple and pulls the trigger. Pow, she mouths as she continues her conversation. Max laughs and continues down the hallway. Juliet Miller, he says, such a fucking rock star, right? 
Definitely, says Bertie, nodding vigorously. She does not know Juliet Miller, either directly or even by reputation, but it seems important to Max for her to agree with him, and so she does. They need illusions of consensus, boys like this. Yes, she knows him already, the way she knows any guy in a polo shirt who walks across a conference room as if it were the green of a lacrosse field. As he walks ahead of her now, no, as he lopes, she notes his easy glances into other people's offices, the nod of his head above the gentle posture of his shoulders, his tan neck golden against the soft white of his shirt collar. These things belong to the kind of boys who are used to people running to keep up with them, who summer elsewhere, who have cars they love and girls they don't, boys for whom not much has ever gone wrong. It is strange to think of Lewis now, but she does. She is thinking that all that has happened in his life at least saved him from being this, a person she hates immediately for no good reason. The conference room looks out into a large loft-like space that forms the atrium for Sirius Pictures' office and the dozen or so other production offices housed there. The interior atrium walls are warehouse-like, lined with unpainted corrugated metal. Large black crystal chandeliers gently sway across the beam-braced ceiling. In another glass-walled room across the way, a handful of people huddle around a long wooden table, pointing at the headshots scattered across its surface. Bertie glances around the room as she sits in one of the dozen or so plywood eames chairs that surround the conference table. This is a nice space, she says. Unusual. Well, that's a nice way to put it, says Max, closing the door. I think they call it Hollywood Danish Regency Modern. <laughs> or something. He shrugs and takes a seat. I'm sure it was appropriately expensive, but I'd prefer to spend money on movies, not throw pillows. It's all a bit much, don't you think? Well, says Bertie, aware that the entire conversation is a kind of test. It's a statement, that's for sure. Max smiles. On the table, a few wedges of cheese lie sweating on a plastic tray beside the skeleton of a bunch of grapes. You want something, he says, suddenly indicating the rem remnants. I'm sure we have coffee, too. He glances back toward the closed door as if expecting to see a waiter. She declines with a smile and they sit in silence for a moment as Max looks at her. Slowly he shifts forward in his chair. Wow, you do have a resemblance to Milena, something in the posture. And here, he says, reaching toward her and running his finger along the side of her face. Your jawline, not identical by any stretch, but distinctly reminiscent. He cocks his head and squints, maneuvering her chin gently from side to side, as if judging a head of livestock, until finally he pulls away. That's what they say, says Bertie, putting her hand to her cheek as if she could feel the similarity. So tell me about what you've been up to, he says, leaning back in his chair. Well, I'm sure they told you I doubled for Milena in the evening dawn, lighting throughout and also on camera for nudity. Oh yes, the ass shot, says Max, nodding vigorously. He smiles. Sorry, did that sound too enthusiastic? I saw a little of the rough cut. I know one of the editors. Dave Ender, you know him? Anyway, I hope you don't mind my saying so, but it's perfect. He holds the air in front of him between his palms until he realizes he is indicating two invisible handfuls of ass. <laughs> then he shakes his head and laughs and drops his hands into his lap. Ha, ah, yes, well, thanks. Her reply is followed by a silence in which she knows they are both considering her body and of what use it may be to each of them. Finally, she says, you must be really excited. I mean, I haven't seen the script, but I saw the piece in Variety. Everyone's saying good things. Yes, yes, he says, blinking slowly. 
You know, it's that same old story, the whole redneck with a dream thing. But people love that story, and we're going to make it fresh, you know, different. That sounds great. She nods gravely. People do love that story. When Max asks, she lets him take a few digital snapshots of her sitting there in the chair and also standing in front of the corrugated metal wall. She looks up into the lens and provides smiles of varying degrees, some sweet, some sexy, some closed-lipped, some showing her teeth. Chin down, eyes up, tongue pressed to the roof of her mouth. Finally, Max seems satisfied, and he lowers the camera. There's a party tonight at the Monarch, he murmurs, without looking at her, as he fusses with the camera. For Jules Dillon, the stylist. She's a friend. Do you know her? You should come. I don't think I know her, she says, but I'll try to stop by. Yeah, it'll be good, he says, looking down at the camera's screen to review the photographs. Okay, I think we're done. We got some good stuff. Great, actually. Look at this one. It's really real. He walks over to Bertie and shows her the image on the digital screen. There she stands, softly smiling, the angular metal wall following into sh falling into shadow behind her. Her striped sweater stands in sharp contrast to the waves of her hair and to the bow of lipstick she had carefully applied in the parking lot in her rearview mirror. The effort she has taken with her appearance shows, and she suddenly feels embarrassed. She sees a plaintive quality in her expression, one that can only be called desperation. Like a redneck with a dream, she thinks. When she tells Redmond how it went, he laughs. Oh God, he thinks you're real, he says. Then he tells her to go to the monarch party and show her face to Max. He tells her to keep it up, the real thing, whatever that means. There was another director, Leo King, who told her she was real too. He told her so more than once. I get why I dig you. You're so fucking authentic, he had said. It was the silliest line she had ever heard, an occupational hazard. He was directing her in a little part in a made-for-TV movie. Silly lines came with the territory. The script was shit. Bertie played the college roommate of a cheerleader turned meth head. Sell it, Leo commanded, from the shadow beneath his baseball cap. Amber, she said, choking, you just aren't yourself anymore. I miss the old Amber. We all do. And down rolled the tears. The shoot was over soon enough. Still, it was hard to stop saying silly things as if she meant them. Leo kept calling and she kept answering. He kept showing up hungry and so she fed him. She fed him lies, one at a time like cherries. The car accident that killed her family being her most notable invention. And there were other smaller lies. But he liked the way that he tasted. He gobbled them whole. I'm happy, she would say, but she wasn't happy. This feels good, she would say, but it didn't feel good. Whatever you want, she would say, but it wasn't about what, anyone else, what he wanted. She had given up too much to care what anyone else wanted. When she told him about the car accident, Leo had said, what an amazing story. She liked the lie, too. It gave her a place to put her family. They could stay inside the lie, safely dead, safely outside of discussion or explanation. She'd even described their funeral, organs and flowers and shiny white coffins and a choir singing, abide with me. It's unbelievable, he said, holding her, how strong you are. The lie made smaller all that was lost. The past was a shadow box and she was Gulliver, giant above it. 
She peeled away the room, walls, she lifted the roof, and she peered down into its tiny rooms. Everything was so small, too fragile for her to hold without destroying, and so she looked without touching at the tiny roads, the tiny houses, the tiny rooms, the tiny fluttering lives. Dad and Judah driving in a tiny car to a tiny distant place, a place in need of God. Mother, tiny in her flannel nightgown, sleeping with the velvet mask over her eyes. Bertie could hold them all in the palm of her hand. Her childhood bedroom was still lavender, a wallpaper flocked with the tiniest flowers. This was her bed, small as a matchbox. This was where she used to dream, and dreams are the only things that came with her. Anyway, Leo eventually left. It's complicated, he said, but it wasn't complicated. Leo King had a wife he had forgotten to mention, a forgiving soul who hadn't care where he had been as long as he came home. After it was over, she had called Bertie's house. This is Leo King's wife, she said. Who? You know who, she said. You're disgusting. He has a family. I didn't know, said Bertie, as she stood in the middle of her living room. It's over anyway. How dare you call me? He doesn't love you, she said, crying. Fine, Bertie said. If you want the truth, I don't even like him. <laughs> Leo had called later to apologize. Don't be angry, he said. But she wasn't angry, really. In fact, she began to laugh. It was the first thing that had made sense in a long time. Why are you laughing, Leo asked, his voice going flat. I don't know, she said. It just all seems so perfect. It was the monarch, the neon lights turning its white facade a sickly green color, the spiky plants crouching along the sidewalk, the poolside cabanas like small ivory circus tents edged with brown stripes, the green leather wing chairs arranged in jaunty clusters, the low brown daybeds piled high with linen pillows, the glowing glass lanterns defining the pool, the cocktail tables blooming up from the ground like mushrooms, the dance floor a sea of upturned faces, the music trembling over every closed eyelid, the lamps hidden in the trees bathing the party in golden light. It was the party at the Monarch that made her call Lewis. First she did as Redmond told her. She showed her face to Max Mason, who smiled when he saw her and came over to say hello. Palm trees loomed above them, their leaves black and ragged. I meant to ask you, he said, is that an accent? From where do you hail, ma'am? He pumped his elbows back and forth in a little jig. Oh, God, she said, clapping her hand to her mouth. Virginia, I thought I'd lost it. Well, isn't that lucky? It's charming. It's barely there, I promise. He squinted and blinked very slowly, indicating deep thought. Do you know Sumner Ramsey? He's from Virginia. He did that doc about that avalanche. I think the title was Avalanche, you know, with an exclamation point, for emphasis. He bowed his head, ready to receive her laugh. She laughed. I don't think so. Or Laura Green, the production designer, she's working on where I'm from. She yelled over the music, clutching her drink. No, God, sorry, I need to get out more. Honestly, I don't know anybody. He grinned. Well, that's not true. You know me. And you'll meet Jules, of course, our intrepid hostess. Speak of the devil, and the devil will appear. He glanced around. Aha, uh -huh, see, there she is. He gestured toward a woman emerging from the dance floor, blonde curls sprung out in a frizzy halo, jabbing her glass into the air, splashing her drink down her wrist. She licked the booze from her arm and grinned, revealing wine-stained incisors. Her neck was draped with a thick gold chain, anchored at one end by a large bronze horse head and an ivory horn. 
The horse nuzzled her braless breasts as if sugar cubes were hidden there, a motion which threatened to th remove her strapless dress. Its flimsy silk fabric was printed with the silhouettes of machine guns and fluttered upward with every mov movement. When Jules saw Max, she screamed with outstretched arms in a vaguely British accent, Come here, motherfucker! <laughs> According to Max, they went to boarding school together. He rose to his feet and grabbed her, lifting her off the ground. Jules screamed and threw her head back and laughed, then kissed his lips greedily and beat his chest with her fists. As she watched them together, Bertie felt emptied out suddenly, as if their happiness were made possible something, by something they were siphoning invisibly from her. She smiled anyway. She grinned even. She laughed along with them and had a few drinks and danced with the newly bilingual grandson of a deposed Latin American dictator and did a few lines of his Colombian in the dusky recesses of Jules Dillon's cabana. Max kept mentioning trips he had taken to Mexican cities, overpronouncing their names. Guadalajara, Tijuana, Puerto Vallarta. So fucking beautiful, Jules kept saying. And the dictator's grandson repeated after her, trying out the words. So fucking beautiful, he chanted. So fucking beautiful. Time surged forward. They were losing moments, but no one cared. They were only moments. Bertie laughed and told a story that she might have invented about a scuffle with a cop over a parking ticket. No way, someone screamed. She nodded violently, believing herself. Then that feeling was ebbing out of her, leaking like air from her body. She lay back on the daybed, clutched a pillow in her arms, and listened to the roar of the party. The pillow was cool, covered with thickly woven linen and stuffed with down feathers that trembled from the music's vibrations. The fabric reminded her of something, of what she wasn't sure, but the feel of it against her face was comforting, its surface as familiar as something from long ago, something that had survived. She was afraid suddenly that whatever Max saw in her, whatever was real, had been lost somehow, dropped like a set of car keys and kicked to the corner of the dance floor where it lay in the darkness waiting to be reclaimed. The linen was real, the trembling feathers real, and so she clung to the pillow wanting to be restored. Linen, she said slowly, pressing her face against the fabric. She imagined the pillow filling with helium, rising and taking her with it right up out of the party. The dictator's grandson nodded, grinning. Linen, he repeated. Then he rose from his chair, deciding to dance again. Linen, he shouted, striking the air with his fist. He rushed out of the cabana and onto the dance floor, shouting, Linen, linen, linen. Motherfucker would have been king, Jules shouted, or president, or whatever, whatever the fuck they have there. Max's head sagged into his shoulders, concealing his neck, as if his body were slightly underinflated. Shit, he said, gripping Jules knee. I could be president. Of like Bolivia or whatever? Fuck yeah, you could. Wear one of those little fucking hats. Ride a fucking donkey or whatever. Get some wives. She glanced at Bertie through a fringe of false eyelashes. Right? Bertie searched her mind, afraid that whatever she said now might matter more than anything she had said at Sirius. Gold bullion, she said finally, filling the silence. The words hung in the air, sparkling. 
Bertie looked at Max to gauge his expression, but he had turned to Jules, his eyelids at half-mast. He grinned and pawed at the machine guns printed on her dress. Gold bullion. Fuck yeah. Chicks and riches. Perfect, Jules said. Keep that shit in a suitcase, handcuffed to your wrist. Wear a little fucking poncho with those fucking rainbow stripes. You'd be like the fucking pimp. She unwound the chain from her neck and placed it on a cocktail table and then leaned back on the pillow beside Max. You'd be flawless, she said, pushing his hair from his forehead. She slid her tongue into his mouth and pressed her palm against his chest. Max sighed and collapsed backward, pulling her against him. Then they were oblivious, Max and Jules, buried under a pile, an avalanche of pillows, slowing, suddenly languid, running their hands over each other. The dictator's grandson, the crown prince of remedial dancing, churned around the dance floor with his head thrown back, pummeling the air with his fists. He was sweating profusely, sandwiched between two girls in baby doll dresses and gladiator sandals and white plastic aviators. They were stone-faced and swaying, their profiles turned away from him as he ground systematically against their hips. The girls stared into space, or perhaps the swimming pool, the lights from the party reflecting in the flat black lenses of their sunglasses. They were as sober as gods, surveying the chaos of their unattended creation. Bertie viewed this scene again through the heavy crystal bottom of her empty highball glass, held to her eye like a monocle. The edges of everything were blurry and distorted. Finally, her gaze fell upon the horse head from Jules' necklace, laid on its side on the cocktail table. She pulled the glass from her eye, and the world fell back into focus. The horse stared straight ahead, regarding her with wide bronze eyes. He looked put upon, tired, and wise. He was real once, too, or an image of something that was made of flesh and eating oats in a barn somewhere, his head still attached to his body. If the horse could speak, he would tell her to leave. <laughs> Before they take your body, he would say, his lips curling to show his teeth. Before they cast your head in bronze. She stood. No one seemed to see her. Thank you, she said to everyone, but to no one in particular. Thank you. questions and it's all everyone's reveling in the party like I am um, we have books for sale at the front counter we'll clear some chairs out set up a table so you can uh, get books signed and chit chat and uh, thank you everyone you've been listening to the skylight books author reading series don't forget that you can check out this and all of our great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Ashling and Arlo. You can check them out at MySpace or Facebook or at the iTunes Music Store. Thank you for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.